This podcast is brought to you by The Province. Listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. Welcome, everybody, to the Keyboard Kimura podcast here on Province Sports Radio. I am your host, E. Spencer Kite, joined again this week by my partner in crime on the Punch Drunk Predictions, Patrick Shiviklinski. Patty, we've had a weird week. Um, last week, last weekend, obviously, we had UFC Brisbane, which we will touch on momentarily. Nothing really changed in the predictions. I think we we came out where we were going in, you holding a two-fight lead. But I would like to point out, one of us got the main event and the third fight on the main card correct, and one of us didn't. <laughs> well, listen, uh, you know, I, I, took a, I took a gamble on uh, Frank Mir. Uh, didn't pan out the way I uh, thought it would. And, uh, you know, the other fight was a was a really good fight um, up to the point of the third round where, you know, uh, Jake Matthews got the win there. But uh, listen, uh, you know, that's part of the predictions, uh, you know, game. And, and you just got to swallow it and, uh, you know, um, look to that two-point lead that I still have. So <laughs> I'm still I'm still sitting pretty over here. <laughs> Trash talking aside, I want to get into Brisbane, and that'll be our starting point here this week. Um, to me, it was one of those cards, sort of as we have talked about in the past, where not a ton of big names, not a ton of super meaningful fights, but a lot of potential to be entertaining as these fight night events and as these overseas fight night events often are. Felt like it kind of dragged a little bit in the prelims, but then we got to Dan Hooker choking out Mark Diva. That was entertaining. Alan Joban went in and did what Alan Joban tends to do. And then the main card was great. Closed out by Mark Hunt with another one of his signature walk-off KOs against Frank Mir. A tick past three minutes into the first round. Starting with that fight, what's your biggest takeaway from the night? What was your biggest sort of standout moment for anybody on the card? Um, I mean, for me, you know, as as impressive it was to see Mark Hunt with another sort of walk away uh, knockout. I think the most impressive moment of the night really came in the Neil Magny fight um, with with Hector Lombard, you know, weathering that uh, early storm, you know, we were accustomed to sort of seeing Hector Lombard, um, you know, unload heavy in that first round and, and throw a lot of shots and put on a lot of pressure. And he did exactly that against Neil Magny. And, um, you know, it looked like he stunned Neil a couple times in that first round and it, and it wasn't looking good. There was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, dominant moments for Hector Lombard, but, um, you know, in, you know, I don't want to say typical Hector Lombard fashion, but, you know, we have seen this before from him, his gas tank, you know, um, was a little low going into that second and third round. And that definitely showed, I mean, when you're carrying around that much muscle and uh, you throw that many power shots in the first round, you're naturally going to slow down. Neil Magny saw that. I think he made fantastic use of his, you know, cardio and his, his reach. He was um, moving around really well and then took advantage of opportunities where he saw that, you know, Hector was starting to throw, you know, maybe some sluggish and lazier shots um, eventually got him to the ground and, and pieced him up in a fight that should have been stopped in that second round, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, a fight that definitely should have been stopped in the second round, and we'll get to that in a second because I think that's the main talking point and takeaway from the fight, which sucks because I agree with you, this was a great performance for Neil Magny. To weather that early storm, I think you can very much say, in typical Hector Lombard fashion, he got tired, got flat-footed, and became more or less a stationary target. I do think it's a great win for Neil Magny. I don't know if it necessarily proves anything for me with him. I didn't sort of rate Hector Lombard anywhere too high above Neil Magny in the welterweight division in terms of hierarchy. It does keep him moving forward, which I think is important. He is a guy that likes to fight pretty regularly. I talked to him before the event, and he said, you know, if they need me in three weeks... 
I'm ready to go in three weeks. Doesn't necessarily care so much about, well, it has to be somebody ahead of me in the rankings. He feels that staying active helps him stay healthy, helps him stay sharp. And if it means another payday and another victory, he's game. You mentioned the stoppage. You mentioned or the need for a stoppage in that second round. I want to start just by asking you, did you feel it should have been stopped at any point in the first when Hector Lombard was unloading, as you said, very early into the fight and had Neil Magny on the ground covering up and scrambling? Um, you know, I didn't think that, you know, it necessarily should have been stopped in the fight. I, I think that there were a lot of dangerous moments where Hector definitely, you know, uh, you know, knocked Neil down to the ground. But I don't think uh, Neil was ever in a position where, you know, he was knocked unconscious or he didn't, you know, properly, you know, protect himself in that first round. Um, I think that, you know, he was definitely put in some situations where uh, it was a little dicey for him. But I think he did enough from at least what I saw to, to um, you know, protect himself in a way that he could make it to that second round. Uh, with, you know, some moments that, you know, Hector was definitely uh, being the aggressor and and putting him in some dangerous positions. I felt the same way and, and said as much in my, my weekend rewind at fan-sided. I wouldn't have been up in arms if Steve Percival had jumped in at any point in that barrage in the first round and said, you know what, this has just been a minute of sustained offense from Hector Lombard. Yes, you're moving, but you're kind of eating some big shots and you seem a little wobbly when, because there was a point where Neil Magny got up and then basically was put right back down on the canvas. Yeah. And I think that would have been okay to me if Lombard goes in, unloads some shot, and Steve Percival says, you know what, we're done here. The crazy part to me is that second round, because I can't remember a fight recently where a guy was mounted and wailed upon for such a sustained period where he wasn't doing anything to effectively defend himself, where a fight wasn't stopped. And the worst part for me was that Steve Percival was right there. He was watching it. He was doing kind of what referees are supposed to do in terms of, hey, defend yourself. I need to see something from you. But just continued to say that and just continued to watch this punishment and you saw the look on Neil Magny's face when the round ended. He kind of had that, like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. We're going to continue. Obviously, we saw what happened just 46 seconds into the third round. The fight gets stopped. But for me, this is one of the most egregious non-stoppages I can remember. <clears throat> and I think that's worrisome and troubling for the UFC potentially go- going back to Australia. I don't want to say potentially because they will be. But for going back and and Steve Percival being one of the sort of local officials that is used regularly, if I'm a fighter, I'm not confident with that guy in the cage with me in terms of his ability to, you know, look out for me and and process things with my best interest in mind. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. I mean, he's there uh, for the fighter's best interest and he's there to keep those fighters safe. Um, you know, it's not Neil Magny's job to stop, you know, um, stop the fight. His, his job isn't to sort of stop whenever he feels that Hector Lombard has had enough. Obviously, his face told, you know, uh, Steve, Personal, uh, Steve Percival that, you know, it looked like Hector Lombard had had enough. And I think that was clear to every single person uh, watching it on TV or in the arena that wasn't named Steve Percival. Um, his face and Mark Goddard's face. If you go back and watch it, referee Mark Goddard, who handled the main event is one of the best officials in the game by far is sitting cage side and literally has his hands on his head where I would assume the thoughts going through his brain are, holy shit, Steve, why aren't you stopping this? And if one of your brothers in arms is sitting there thinking you're making a crazy mistake, you're probably making a crazy mistake. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it it made absolutely no no sense to me why that stop was uh why that stoppage didn't come in the second round. Um I think that he definitely put those fighter uh you know, he definitely put Hector Lombard in danger um taking that many shots to the head, you know, at at a pretty furious pace um put on by Neil Magny cuz he was clearly, you know, 
doing all he could to stop the fight. And then when he saw the stoppage wasn't coming, he was going even harder. <laughs> so it just, to me, it was, it was pretty tough to digest that whole scene. And I really do think that, you know, um, it was, it was a disgusting display of, of refereeing to not, uh, put that stoppage in when it should have happened at the end of that second round. Well, in the couple crazy moments, one, you get sort of everybody else, including the fighter that is unloading repeatedly looking at you like, dude, aren't you going to stop this? Yeah. But you also have that moment in that minute in between rounds where Hector Lombard takes a little bit to get up to, and back to his corner and he comes out and he's clearly still dazed. He's clearly not a hundred percent that you can stop it right there and be like, you know what? You don't need anymore. That dude just yeah. beat on you for probably two minutes straight, was looking at me, wanting me to stop it. I'm going to do the right thing and make up for it now and call it off. But what we find out as they get into the round is that Steve Percival was like, hey, Hector, I'm going to need you to defend yourself better or else I'm going to stop the fight. Just ridiculous. Hey, yeah, Steve, if ridiculous. you need to tell the guy you need to defend yourself better, maybe just stop the fight. Because yeah. we saw, like, I wrote in my recaps that that third round of punishment, that busted up face and the blood that Hector Lombard lost in that third round, to me is on Steve Percival. And I don't want to make this wholly about, you know, going in on a referee. But, dude, it's your job to protect these dudes and that guy took punishment that he didn't need to because you were ineffective in your job. And that's something that the Combat Sports Commission in Australia 100% needs to look into and address with Steve Percival and really all their officials because we can't go back and fix what happened. We can't change what has taken place, but it can be a learning moment. It can be a teachable moment going forward where you review it and say, Here's what you should have done. Here's how it should have been processed. The other crazy part from that fight pertains to the judges because somehow none of them thought that the first round where Hector Lombard absolutely wailed on Neil Magny or the second round where Neil Magny and I believe Sean Alshadi of MMA Fighting counted it, it was something like 160 straight unanswered blows None of the officials thought either of those two rounds necessitated a 10-8 score, which is absolutely perplexing as well. So lots of problems coming out of that fight, which is going to take away from a very good win for Neil Magny, but lots of, hang on a minute, I want to think twice about going to Australia for me. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, sort of to connect the co-main and the main is maybe Neil Magny should have just like stood up and walked away and looked at Steve Percival and said, he's done. Because as we <laughs> saw with Mark Hunt, he waylays Frank Mir. Mir goes down in a heap and kind of arms come up ready to defend the incoming guy. And Mark Hunt kind of just does the Mark Hunt shrug and walks off like, yeah, this guy don't need no more. And Mark Goddard is like, you know what? You're right. This guy don't <laughs> need no more. So fighters, maybe what you need to do is when you knock these guys down and you feel like you have done enough and it's a good enough blow to walk off on, just start walking off and see if the referee gives it to you. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is, is, is Mark Hunt, you know, even said it in the post fight, you know, he said he felt, uh, you know, he felt that Frank Mir, you know, he wasn't there. So when he knocked him out, you know, he could feel that he had knocked him out and said, you know, like you just said, I mean, he, he doesn't need any more, and he took the opportunity to just walk away without giving Frank Mir any more damage, you know. Um, I think, you know, classy move by a vet. Yeah, absolutely classy move by a vet. Trademark Mark Hunt. Um, a guy we talked about going in, we didn't necessarily know what this fight held for the division, if it held anything. I think there's some interesting questions for Frank Mir now who said going in, I want to fight for four or five, maybe seven more years. Maybe he's going to, and and I saw yesterday, sorry, we're taping this on Tuesday, so I saw on Monday, he sort of said, give me a few weeks to process before you start hitting me with the social media hate, before you start asking me whether I'm retiring or not. I think this is one of those moments that has to make you think twice. Yes, you got caught by a big shot by one of the biggest power hitters in the game. 
but there's not a lot for him left to prove, as Brian Stan said on the post-fight show. So it feels like this would be a good time to walk away if he wanted to. I also think for Mark Hunt, a lot of people have been trying to figure out sort of where he goes next and does this get him back into title contention. And for me, I would rather just see him continue to operate in this role as a main event or co-main event guy in Australia where he's fighting kind of fringe contenders, guys that aren't necessarily there in in the title picture at this point, but gives us these entertaining fights where we get we know what we're going to get with Mark Hunt and it doesn't necessarily have to be about the title chase because the division is robust with challengers for the first time in a long time that we don't necessarily need to run Mark Hunt into that group going forward off this victory. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. You know what? I guess 41 years of age, Mark Hunt is at right now. Yep, 41. Um, you know, I, I I think that, you know, he, he's had his sort of shot, you know, in, in terms of, you know, his fight with uh, Fabricio Verdum. Um, that, you know, uh, interim title shot that he had, I think, you know, that was the sort of pinnacle of his opportunity to get, you know, that heavyweight title. I mean, a lot can change, obviously, in the heavyweight division, but... You know, I tend to agree with you when you say, you know, he should be taking those fights, you know, more entertaining fights, headlining in Australia and uh, guys who are on that on that sort of, you know, um, you know, latter part of the top 10 outside of the top 10, you know, good measuring stick for some guys to sort of go up against a Mark Hunt. Um, But I think more so, I guess more so as as you were kind of suggesting is. Uh, just the entertaining right matchups for Mark Hunt, I think, would um, do a lot. Just you know, in terms of bringing in entertainment value to um, those fights, you know, and down under, um, you'd have Mark Hunt, you know, a big recognizable name still in the mix down there, and and you don't sacrifice one of these, you know, young guys that are, you know, maybe trying to come up in the heavyweight division. Just give, continue giving him, you know good fights against veteran fighters and, and um, entertaining ones that, you know, <clears throat> will, you know, um, be on, be on the feet. And, um, and if he, and if he scores yeah. another first round walk off or another, you know, decisive victory, then you reexamine it and you look at it again. If he puts up two more then he's obviously has to be considered in the mix, but to what you're saying and, and what I think we both agree on you don't necessarily need to run him in there with the winner of Junior Dos Santos and Ben Rothwell from Zagreb, Croatia, because yeah. that maybe eliminates a contender that we don't need to eliminate at this point because we've seen Mark Hunt face current champ Fabricio Verdum, albeit on short notice, but we have some guys available. So why not make the most yeah. of those new guys and give Mark Hunt the opportunity to just keep doing what he's been doing because it works. Yeah. And I mean, um, there are some potential matchups that, you know, I I'd even like to see, you know, um, that might be entertaining, you know, the, the loser of the Travis Brown, uh, Kane Velasquez fight or the loser of the, you know, the, the Alistair Overeem, um, Andre Arlovsky fight, you know, those are four guys that stylistically, you know, would be a fun fight to watch, you know, Mark Hunt, um, you know, Mark Hunt versus any of those guys. So I think uh, there there are matchups out there for him. And like you said, I mean, if he does another one of those walk-off KOs, then obviously you reassess and you sort of say, you know, maybe this guy has another run in him. But for the time being, I think it's just, uh, you know, the best for, for everyone if, you know, he just keeps – uh, taking those entertaining fights, headlining in Australia. Uh, he's a huge draw over there. So I think that that's the best method right now. And if he continues to sort of do what he did to Frank Mir, then you take it, you know, to take a look at, uh, you know, his situation and say, all right, well, maybe we'll give him one of these top five guys. <clears throat> you had mentioned Jake Matthews off the top. Obviously, one of the fights that you and I differed on in our predictions. Matthews coming away with a third round submission win over Johnny Case in a in a lightweight bout that won fight of the night. I don't want to spend too much more time on this card. That fight to me felt like a kind of get to the next level moment for Jake Matthews, where we're seeing that continued development. I tweeted during the bout that I would really love to see him spend a year or two years moving to the U.S., 
training at a camp, got some feedback from the guys down in Albuquerque as he has been there in the past working with Kyle Noak. They all have a lot of high praise for him. That's a place that I think he could go to and really see his skill set expand. Before that, old man Dan Kelly with a crazy comeback win. Uh, Canadian Steve Bose with a, with a speaking of walk-off KOs, uh, an absolute one-hitter quitter. And as we said, just sort of off the top, overall, a pretty entertaining good night of fights. What else kind of stood out for you? Who else was the shining star of this event for you? Yeah, I mean, um, as you were mentioning, I think, you know, Jake Matthews, definitely next level opportunity for him and and took advantage of that in a fight that, you know, arguably, you know, I think he was losing in in, in the early goings of that fight. Um, Johnny Case put up a great performance as well, uh, you know, but, you know, once Jake Matthews sort of uh, started landing those body shots, I mean, those just connected with a lot of hurt. And, um, you know, you could see it kind of knocked the wind out of Johnny Case. And, and it was a it was a great uh, moment for, for Jake Matthews to, you know, cap it off with that, you know, rear naked choke with, I believe, just over 10 seconds left in the first round. I mean, in the sorry, in the final round, in the third round. Um, but I mean, Jake Matthews, he's built like a friggin' middleweight. He's, you know, <laughs> he, he looks huge. Um, you know, when, when you compare him to other lightweights and, you know, if you can sort of harness, like you were saying that, that, um, physicality, put him in a great camp, um, you know, like Greg Jackson's or, or something like that. I mean, the sky's the limit for this kid. You know, he's, he's got a lot of talent. Like, as I was saying before in the, in the predictions a little bit, you know, I thought that, Jake Matthews, obviously, athletically and physically, he's there. He's got the tools. Right. But in terms of his, his talent and his technique, there's some things that he could use sharpening up on. And I think if if he got with a, you know, a really strong camp, they can teach him that because he's so young and he's you know still soaking things up. So you know if he gets with the right camp and with the right people and, and gets his technique going, I mean, there's nothing stopping the yeah, and as I said on from being a contender in the next few years. Yeah, and as I said on Saturday, it's not a knock on his dad, Mick, who does a lot of his training. It's not a knock on the training partners that he does have at his gym. It's a matter of just surrounding yourself with the best guys possible. It is very much a cliche, but iron does indeed sharpen iron. And so you drop him into that group in Albuquerque where you've got some of the best featherweights, lightweights, welterweights in the world convening on a regular basis, plus outstanding coaches. I just think it it accelerates his learning curve and accelerates his growth and development, which I still think, even just right now, staying put, give him three years and he's a top 10 fighter. So it'll be, be interesting to track going forward and seeing what happens for Jake Matthews next, coming off a very impressive finish that he needed, trailing 20, 2018 on all cards going into that round. So needed the finish to get the victory. And I got to give a quick shout out to old man, Dan Kelly. Um, (laughs) That was, that was a pretty awesome come from behind victory. A lot of people did not give him a chance in elegance to Antonio Carlos jr. uh, Myself included. So, I mean, he proved me wrong in a major way, but I was glad to see him do it. Um, That was some old man strength. If I ever seen it. I loved him shouting out his, called it a head kick in the post-fight interview with John Hannock. And yes, I guess technically it was his foot hitting Antonio Carlos Jr. in the head. But it was more of like a front snap kick to a dude that was bent over than necessarily getting that leg up high and, and knocking him out or doing some serious damage. But absolutely a great win, a great come from behind against a guy that a lot of people expected big things from in terms of Cara Di Sapato, or as Kenny Florian reminded us far too many times during the fight, shoe face. <laughs> it's the Keyboard Kimura podcast here on Province Sports Radio. E. Spencer Kite and Patrick Shivik-Linsky talking about the UFC and all things going on. So last week we sort of had a moment, a segment where we tried to figure out what comes next for Conor McGregor and Nathan Diaz coming off of their clash at UFC 196 in Las Vegas. As it turns out, there's a very strong likelihood that they're just going to run it back. So before I get into my thoughts, I want to get your thoughts on the potential immediate rematch of a fight we just saw four weeks ago, three weeks ago. That was, how do we put it going in? The featherweight champion taking on a traditional lightweight 
at welterweight, where, as the UFC said in their DMX-narrated trailer, a fight that breaks all the rules but makes all the sense in the world. Oh, man. Well, you know, when I first, um, you know, saw the news, I thought it had come up on one of those, you know, those fake uh, generated, <laughs> like, Twitter or, or, like, Facebook posts. Like, I was like, what is going on here? Uh, Connor versus... Um, you know, Nate too. And I was like, okay, this is a joke. And and then some reputable guys started reporting on it. And I was like, uh, what is really going on here? And, um, you know, still right now to this day, I'm kind of scratching my head a bit and I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, uh, confused as, as to why they decided to make that, um, the, the potential headliner, I guess, for UFC 200 hasn't been, you know, officially confirmed yet, but, um, it, it's something that has a lot of steam and I think that, uh, could very well happen. And, uh, I, I don't know what to make of it in some <laughs> ways. Um, you know, I can see the logic behind running it back in terms of it's the, it's the big entertainment value fight. It's the money fight. It's a chance for Connor to get some redemption, but at the same time, um, we just saw <laughs> Nate Diaz piece up Conor McGregor in that second round and then choke him out um, in, in a relatively quick amount of time on 11 days notice after having some dirty water in Mexico. <laughs> you know, this guy on a full camp, um, I don't know what to expect with this fight. Honestly, I'm at, I'm at a loss for words right now, Spencer. <laughs> well, and, and that's really where I am. And I talked about it in Sunday's paper, just understanding that from a business perspective, yes, it makes financial sense for the UFC to run back sort of the biggest name in the organization, trying to get redemption. Nate Diaz, as we said in queuing this up, never been more popular, never been at a larger exposure point than he is right now. And so, yes, it's a fight that people are... I feel like the, the reaction across the MMA world has been... I'm absolutely going to watch. It's going to be entertaining, but I just don't get it because there's so many other options. That's what I said on Sunday in the paper. It's where I'm still at now on Tuesday, even though it's not fully confirmed and, and booked. It just feels like one of the best questions that I saw sort of as the response to it, as you said on Friday when, when you know, sources that we trust started talking about it, was if Connor had beaten Nate, is there even a consideration of running it back? And the answer is, of course, absolutely not. Um, and that, to me, becomes really the sticking point and sort of the, I would really like to hear from Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta about this. I would like them to maybe have to answer that question because you're clearly doing this as giving Connor what he wants. He wants to avenge that loss. He wants to be on UFC 200, but it to me is, is cutting off your nose to spite your face. You have so many other options. You have both Frankie Edgar and Jose Aldo who would be ready and willing to go in July for the featherweight title, which now has been put on hold, which is one of the concerns the UFC had going into even making Connor versus Rafael Dos Anjos and potentially having him fight for two belts and holding two belts was that divisions go on hold. Well, now you're doing it to yourself. So what's the what's the purpose of that outside of just, you know, continuing to fill the coffers? And so, and even for Nate Diaz, as you said, 11 days notice, coming off a boat in Mexico, no camp, no sparring, gets, you know, loose and, and finds his bearings in the first round, takes the best Conor McGregor has to give him, and then finishes him in relatively quick, relatively succinct fashion in the second. Not that I can't see this going a different way. I can very much see Conor McGregor making adjustments, executing a smarter game plan, and this being a longer fight. But what value is there to Nathan Diaz of beating Conor McGregor again? He's already done it. Beating him for a second time doesn't necessarily change his standing and if he goes out and loses to him, do we do a trilogy? Do we just move on and be like, well, Connor got the win he wanted, so we're going forward? Mm -hmm. And then you've burnt Nate Diaz and those two divisions where they could be challenging for titles or or fighting in championship fights just pick up from there. It just it feels to me like one of those 
short-term decisions that the UFC makes where they're like, this is awesome, and they haven't considered any of the long-term implications, or they just don't care about the long-term implications. And that seems like a complete misstep to me. Yeah, no, and, and I agree. I mean, they're not, they're clearly not considering, I mean, and if they are, then, you know, they seem to have ignored it. You know, the the, the ramifications of what this fight does to, you know, as you were saying, their respective divisions. And um, for, you know, for Connor, if if he were to come out and win this fight, yeah, it's a win. Um, and it's a win over a guy who defeated him. You, you could, you know, um, marketed him as, as finally being able to beat that guy in, in a higher division above him. And he could go to lightweight or challenge for that belt. But, you know, I think I think you're crazy if you're, you know, if you're thinking that Nate Diaz is going to get a third fight with Conor McGregor if, if Conor wins this fight, which is um, a total double standard, I think. It, and it kind of sucks being in Nate's position, um, you know, because he definitely came into that fight and, and an underdog in a lot of ways. And he kept saying, you know, I'm going to beat this guy up. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to finish him, blah, blah, blah. And, he did exactly that, and and the way he did it was impressive, and he did it on short notice. So what more does Nate Diaz have to prove by fighting Conor McGregor for a second time? I think, like you said, there's a lot more, you know, there, there's a lot of more interesting matchups for him. Um, um, you know, the, the Dos Anjos rematch makes sense to me. There's, you know, uh, a Robbie Lawler fight at welterweight that could be interesting. I think out of all those options, um, you know, the Conor McGregor one makes the least amount of sense to me um, in terms of what's good for Nate Diaz. And as the winner, you know, I feel like almost he's he's kind of getting, you know, I, I wouldn't say punished, but um, it's it's nothing that's going to move his career forward with another win over Conor McGregor. Um, you know, people are going to say, you know, well, he's the bigger guy and he won the first fight. He should have won the second fight. He's now on a full camp, right? Yeah. Um, so, so there's, there's no benefit for Nate Diaz except for, you know, you know that we did hear Nate saying, I want the big money fights. I want <laughs> right. that big money. And this is certainly in that category. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is, is it, it in a way makes sense for Nate because he's going to get a big paycheck. It's against a guy that he just beat on 11 days notice, coming off, as we said, hanging out in Mexico with the homies. Mm -hmm. So there's a very strong likelihood, and his confidence would have to be sky high going into it. But if you're just strictly making fights now on the basis of what's the biggest financial matchup we can make, that feels a little bit weird to me. I know that the UFC is a business, but this is also a sport, and just handpicking guys for for marquee events like this feels weird. The other part to me is I don't know that you can have, I mean, the UFC could do whatever the hell they please. They've made that clear over the years. They're going to do whatever they want. They created an interim featherweight title last summer, strictly as a way to like justify keeping Conor McGregor in the main event. I think they would go ahead and put this as the main event at UFC 200. And that feels maybe like an even bigger slap in the face to whoever comes after them because the chances are that one of those fights that that sets the table for this rematch that no one really feels is necessary is going to be a championship fight. And I get that Dana White will go out there and talk about marketability and build yourself into a star and people want to see you and all of those things. But if your champions aren't valued and presented in a prestige position ahead of the guy that just lost in a rematch that happened by the time it comes up at UFC 200, if it does come to fruition, it'll be four months. That's saying something, and that's going to be something that with some of these guys doesn't sit right and rubs them the wrong way. And sort of, as we've talked about with free agency and more guys fighting out their contracts, trying to figure out what their value is in this open marketplace, you can be damn sure that some of these guys are going to be like, you know what? I'm a champion. I've done X, Y, and Z. We're getting to this point where there's some more money out there and you're valuing this dude above everyone else. As Chuck Mendenhall said in his fantastic piece on MMA fighting, the C in UFC certainly stands for Connor. The F in the U maybe mean a little something else. 
And that's <laughs> tough. Like that's a bad, to me, that's a bad spot for the UFC to be in. I think it speaks to why Rory McDonald absolutely wants to explore his opportunities once he's done with his fight with Stephen Thompson in Ottawa. I think we'll see more and more people do it. And to me, the one dude that I want to watch out for and the one dude that I want to hear for more than anybody is Frankie Edgar. Because here's a guy that has done everything that has been asked of him. I was there when Dana White told him, you cannot deny him. He gets whatever he wants next. Which, of course, at the time, we all tweeted out, we all know what that means. We all know the grains of salt that that has to be taken with. But here's a guy that is probably going to get passed over yet again. And not that Frankie's old, but his window is closing. And this dude wants to fight. He, too, wants those big fights. What the hell else is he supposed to do? Just go out and fight Max Holloway for the sake of fighting Max Holloway? If he loses, everything he's worked for is gone? Like... These are the things that I think I would love to be a fly on the wall in the UFC offices. I would love to be in the boardroom just playing devil's advocate because I think these are the things that don't get considered or thought through enough when making a fight like this that everybody, as we said, going to watch it, going to be entertaining, going to be a lot of fun listening to these two guys tell each other throughout the buildup that they do not give an F. Um, But at the same time, there's more that could be done. And so I really, it. there's a part of me that hopes it doesn't come together, I guess is where I'll end it, just because I would like to see some of the other things. And I think a rematch is more interesting a year from now or even eight months from now if they both have belts than it is right now as an immediate rematch at UFC 200. Yeah, I mean, and... Part of it, I mean, you know, listen, like, I mean, on on a on a sort of just regular kind of, you know, casual watcher level, I, I get it. I mean, I like I, I'm not going to sit here and act like I don't understand, you know, the appeal of, of running this fight back and, and the, the sort of, you know, money that can be made with this. I totally understand that, and and I think the casual viewer is going to be like, oh yeah, you know, Connor's fighting Nate again. This is going to be so awesome. Now there's going to be so much buildup, blah blah blah. There's all these things that are going to be, you know, um, attached to this, and it's going to be a big fight. It's going to make a lot of money, like you said, you know. But at what cost? I mean, you know, listen, you're you are jeopardizing, you know, whatever way you want to look at it, you're jeopardizing the integrity of the sport of mixed martial arts um, in terms of having that as a main event, like you were saying, and a title fight as a co-main event. I thought, you know, and I think that most people think this way is being a champion in your respective division is the, you know, highest, you know, you can get in, in your division or, or, you know, being a champion in the UFC is, is the, you know, highest level you can get to, but apparently not. I mean, if you're going to be a co-main event, to a fight that's not even for a title, then what more can you do? And guys like Frankie Edgar, as you were mentioning, they cannot do any more. I mean, um, you know, he's hungry for that title shot. As you said, his window is closing. And if he doesn't get it in the next, you know, <coughs> year to, to two years, I, I don't know how much he exactly has left, but, you know, that window is closing and you're just focusing on one guy in Conor McGregor. And I understand he's the guy who's making a ton of money for this promotion. He's bringing in the people. He's putting, you know, butts in seats. But there's more to the promotion than Conor McGregor. It's definitely going to be an interesting story to continue monitoring, to continue talking about as we get more information. Seems like a weekly thing. We get little updates week to week. So we will continue to talk about it here on the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. Another thing that I'm sure we're going to be talking about next week, as we are recording right now on Tuesday, March 22nd, the bill to legislate and legalize mixed martial arts in the state of New York is being debated in the Assembly. It has been through three committee votes passing through, currently getting some some back and forth on the Assembly floor with one of the senators, Ellen Jaffe, saying that she feels MMA is barbaric and ruining the lives of women and children and doesn't have a place in, you know, proper society, which makes me think she still lives in 1997. Um, (laughs) Being countered, of course, by the Assembly Majority Leader defending regulation, saying we need to bring MMA out of the shadows. 
Um, because MMA is happening underground, as we know in Mixmart, in New York State, sorry, right now, for people that are interested in this, check out Jim Janea, check out Mark LaMonica. They have done, <clears throat> excuse me, fantastic work throughout this process, which has been dragging on for a number of years. But not to get tied down in, is it happening? Is it going to happen? You and I were talking as we were setting this up about the importance of it happening. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit more because I think we are in agreement that MMA being legalized in New York is about more than just being able to hold one event at Madison Square Garden for the UFC. So just kind of get into your thoughts, if you can, about how important this is as something for the sport and also for the state of New York. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a game changer. This is a you know, this is the only, you know, remaining major market in the United States that, you know, hasn't legalized mixed martial arts, professional mixed martial arts. And I think that, you know, uh, having that ability to go into New York is big. And it's also big in terms of, um, you know, obviously for, for, for the reasons, you know, we kind of just mentioned, I mean, Madison Square Garden, you know, being that, that sort of mecca, you know, of, of, you know, fights in the past. I mean, all the great boxing matches that have gone down there, you know, Muhammad Ali, Joe, Joe Fraser, I mean, Lennox Lewis, Evander Holyfield, the list goes on. You know, I, I think it's, you know, that is, is key. And I mean, to, to build that sort of legacy for, for mixed martial arts, uh, having the ability to go to New York City, having the ability to go to Madison Square Garden, that's major. But, I mean, as we were talking about before, it also, I think, you know, a lot of people uh, are, are just thinking about New York City. But there's a lot of, you know, other places that, you know, as we talked about before uh, the show, you know, that they that the UFC or, or other promotions can now utilize and go into markets like Buffalo, like Syracuse, like Albany, um, you know, even Brooklyn now at the Barclays Center. You know, these are these are places that, you know, you can have, um, you know, fight nights. You can do a lot of, you know, other things that were not available to you before. And, you know, I know you mentioned beforehand uh, as as we talked, you know, um, uh, about, you know, the the accessibility of New York. And I think that is that's a huge one as well. Um, being in that sort of East Coast corridor, you're close to so many other, you know, major cities. Uh, it'll be accessible for people from the surrounding areas to come to. And it's New York. I mean, what can you say? <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it has that allure to it. I mean, it is the media mecca of North America. It is, you know, um, the grandest city in the United States, New York City. So, you know, just having that ability to go in there and build more of these, you know, monumental moments and, and great events, uh, you know, in New York City and have some fight nights in those surrounding areas. You know, that I think will, you know, do a lot to not only, you know, um, push forward the sport for, for the UFC, but also for mixed martial arts as a whole. And I think the media point that you just made and, and the comment that you made about it being the biggest media market, that's one of the things to me that taking off my, you know, caping, caping up for MMA as I would often do because I love this sport. It provides me a living. It provides my way of life. Um, and is just something that I love regardless of whether I was working in it or not. I think one of the things that will help eliminate some of these absolutely asinine opinions and views we're hearing in the New York State Assembly right now as we are discussing it about MMA being barbaric and being compared, you know, people still sitting there doing the like, boxing is perfectly fine, but this mixed martial arts shit is crazy. Like, that's just <laughs> dumb. That's just like... That's an uneducated, antiquated view of this sport. And I think getting into a place like New York, where you're going to have some of these more major outlets with an easier ability to cover the sport and more interest in the sport, is only going to help eliminate some of those things, help carry this sport to a larger audience, help bring it even further into the mainstream, not to mention the economic benefits that you see throughout the state, throughout whatever city they go to. Because as we talked about earlier, before we started taping, this isn't just about going to New York City. 
There's also the opportunity to go to places like Buffalo, like Albany, like Syracuse with fight night events. So it spreads throughout. I also think that getting cleared and getting legalized improves the regional development of the sport on a regional level because there are so many great East Coast promotions that have had success without being in New York that there's an opportunity to grow financially for them and exposure-wise for them by being in New York that isn't necessarily there maybe for being in Connecticut or parts of New England. And so to me, it just, like, I understand when people say just because we live in the bubble, it doesn't mean there aren't people outside of it that still disagree and don't understand. To me, I can strip away my MMA fandom and look at this just as an issue in terms of, so you're okay with boxing, but you're not with the sport that medical science and medical research has shown to be less harmful. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and so it's just like, why are we still, to me, it's almost why are we still having this debate in 2016 when every other state in the United States, I believe every province in Canada, various other places around the world have said, this is okay, we're good, these guys absolutely come bring your money to our state, and New York is like, you know what, we're still, we're not interested. It just doesn't make yeah. sense to me. No, I mean, and... and... It's it's just been, you know, building and a long time coming. I think this, you know, uh, this is, you know, if it, you know, if it goes through and, and hopefully, uh, you know, I'm not saying if I'm hopefully just a matter of time at this point. Um, it's a great victory for the sport. I mean, I think it like I was saying before, you know, New York is the only place, you know, that it, it was sort of that last barrier. And once you get to New York, I think that. Um, it just opens up a whole, you know, other set of possibilities. Mixed martial arts right now is, you know, at a, at a huge, you know, um, uh, time in its, you know, history. The popularity has, has, I mean, arguably never been higher. Um, and being able to just go into that market, you know, the, the New York media market, the, you know, the Madison Square Gardens, the uh, building of the promotions that that are sort of you know native to that area, uh, it it's huge. I mean, and it you know it it can't be seen as sort of a you know ah no big deal kind of thing because right. you know this is a very big deal in my opinion. Well, and one of the things that that just sort of stands out for me is, as you mentioned, you look at some of the fights that have taken place in New York. Madison Square Garden is considered the Mecca. It is one of those sort of storied buildings in terms of combat sports. And to see some of these things that are that are coming up and and some of the things that people are still saying is just like, this is crazy to me. It doesn't make sense. It feels almost a little bit, and I may get in trouble for saying this, but it feels like some of the antiquated views of media higher ups that don't want to cover this sport that don't want to invest in this sport that is clearly gaining momentum clearly building traction over the last five ten years and and really hitting its next plateau and next apex in mainstream media right now because they don't particularly like it just because you don't like it doesn't mean there aren't benefits economically to your state doesn't mean there aren't constituents in your area that very much would like to see the UFC and professional legalized MMA come to town. And so it feels like one of those get out of your own way moments. Mm -hmm. And hopefully everybody gets out of their own way. As we talked about a little bit before we started recording, I think you can make little connections between New York and what we see throughout a lot of Canada where, you know, athletic commissions and government bodies kind of stand in the way of the sport really growing and flourishing here because our regional scene has absolutely been decimated over the last bunch of years as costs and, and insurance costs and, you know, interference from athletic commissions has ramped up. We don't see nearly as many fights out here in BC Ontario hasn't hosted anything this year, which is absolutely amazing. And so if we continue to see some of these sort of bastions of 
of objection getting toppled, maybe that gives some people in this country a chance to, you know, a little bit of pause to maybe rethink some of their stances and recognize that it's not going away and you're just doing yourself a disservice and doing your area harm by not getting on board, by not seeing the value of it, even if you disagree, even if you don't like it. So hopefully by the time we get back on here next week, we will have a decision. Um, if you want to, I guess it'll be done by the time, by the time this gets live. I was going to say you can, you can watch the proceedings that's happening right now. You can jump online and watch it, but it's some craziness, but I think we're going to get to a vote and, and hopefully, I mean, this is further than we've gotten. Hopefully at the end of the day, we will be able to jump on Twitter and tell people that it is official. Hopefully by the time they are listening to this, we are outdated and we have gotten into New York and you and I can maybe, you know, share, share a bite to eat and a frosty beverage in the great <laughs> state of New York near the end of the year. I would love that. Because <laughs> I, know, I know you're a big fan of New York and I know you would make the trip if there was an event in New York, as I it, abso- it, as yeah. I absolutely would. I already have lodging set up. Shout out to my man, Mark LaMonica of Newsday. $20 US a night, I get his couch. So me, nice. Long Island, Mark LaMonica, hanging out. Yeah, no, I, any excuse to go to, to New York is great for me. I mean, <laughs> I love the city, but to, to witness a, you know, a... UFC show at the garden. That's, that's something that, you know, you have to, you have to go out for, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a bucket list thing. And and I think it's a bucket list thing for a lot of fighters. So hopefully the people in New York that are going to get set to vote on this today, make the right decision and we get to get there, but we will let you know all of that on next week's edition of the show because this week's edition has come to an end. I want to thank my partner in crime, Patrick Shiviklinski. I am E. Spencer Kite. Follow him on Twitter at Pat Shiviklinski, C-W-I-K-L-I-N-S-K-I. We maybe need to work on something new and, and easier for people, but that is how you do it. <laughs> Follow me at Spencer Kite as always. No UFC events this week, so get out, enjoy your weekend, enjoy, it's Easter weekend, right? So happy Easter to everybody, spend some family time, check us out next week, and as always, enjoy the fights, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com, follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura, or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash keyboard Kimura.